A, uh, a few weeks ago, you met our newest pastor here, uh, Jared Coe. By the way, it was especially fun to see how so many hundreds of you welcomed the Coes, helped them settle in here. Thank you. Um, the other day, as you guys all stood in line waiting to check out the newest member of our team, I was, I was standing over here, and it, it made me think back over the process, the long process that is involved in getting the right pastor on staff. I want to share with you just a very simplified overview of that process, okay? First thing that happens, several people do the hard diligence to determine fit and, and fitness. Um, they, they work through dozens and dozens and dozens of great resumes looking for fit and fitness. After they locate the candidates that they feel fit best, the people in charge then conduct an incredibly thorough set of inquiries. Through that process, they finally select their top candidate. Then, whichever executive pastor is over that ministry, yes, they are the exec men, whichever executive pastor is over that ministry, then he has an interview with the pastoral candidate that's the top choice and asks a lot of really hard questions. These, these questions are designed to expose weaknesses in the candidate. What are the weaknesses in his or her lives? Uh, once they are pleased with the prospect, then it finally comes to me. Now, my role is really simple. Get this. I don't interview the candidate. I don't, I don't ask him any questions, at least not any questions designed to investigate him. What I do is I let the candidate interview us. On behalf of all of you and our elders, I answer the hard questions the candidate has about our character. Uh, I respond to their usually brilliant inquiries about our past and our present and our future. Here, here's what I do in a nutshell. I reveal truth about us. I give all the time that family needs to complete their important work of checking us out. And by the way, it's really important they get the chance to directly interview me because ultimately they're going to be under my shepherding. Now, I bring that up because today we begin a new study of truth in the Psalms. Fascinatingly, some of the biblical Psalms follow a, follow a very similar process to the one that I have with prospective pastors. Our, our psalmists aren't investigating some mere human. They're getting to know the truth regarding God. These psalmists, think about what they're trying to do. They're trying to achieve a perfect fit in God's company, right? So they sit down for an interview with the leader himself, in this case Yahweh, and they conduct a very thorough investigation. And then you and I get to learn from it. It's really cool. Open your Bible to Psalm 93. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's get to know the one who ultimately shepherds all our souls. Let's learn some truth about God. Psalm 93, it's just before Proverbs, just after Job. Go to number 93, and let's read the whole psalm. It's only five verses. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, enveloped in strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. Your throne has been established from the beginning. You are from eternity. The floods have lifted up, Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves, greater than the roar of many waves. The mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high, is majestic. Verse 5, Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. Holiness is the beauty of your house for all the days to come. Beautiful, beautiful. You'll see in our notes, open your bulletin, you'll see in our notes a few takeaways from God's self-revealed truth in Psalm 93. Look at what we learned from this, this interview with God. That's what this is. It's a very personal dialogue with God. Of first importance is the statement that he is enthroned. By the way, that is a theme behind a whole raft of the Psalms. However, the importance of enthronement is a little tough for Americans to grasp. I've noticed this over the years. Americans have a hard time with God's absolute power. After all, our ancestors fought to get rid of a king, right? By the way, I wonder what they'd think of our government today. Anyway, we don't have kings. In fact, those of you who are studying with us around the world, and we are so blessed to know 
that, that in many, many countries around the world, there are people who study with us. Thank you. We love you, and we're so grateful for you. You're probably going to be shocked to learn that Americans reflexively are against big government, especially if that government has absolute power. Thus, we have a much harder time than you do understanding the beauty and the importance of God enthroned. Unlike you in Holland and England and Jordan, in, in the U.S., we don't have a framework for how to appropriately respond to an enthroned absolute monarch. Thankfully, I know a guy, all right? I know a guy who can help Americans with all this, Alan P. Ross. Dr. Ross is one of the great scholars of Hebrew worship. He taught for years at Dallas Seminary. I was very privileged to study the Psalms under him. Look what Dr. Ross says about God's enthronement. He says, the enthronement Psalms are characterized by expression, the Lord reigns, which is what was used in ours, or the Lord is the great king, or the Lord comes to judge. These Psalms emphasize the Lord's reign over the earth, the Lord's reign over Israel, and God's universal reign. However, the fullest meaning of the terminology used pertains to the messianic kingdom. The language these psalms employ, language reminiscent of the epiphany at Sinai, I'll explain that in a moment, harmonizes very well with the prophetic oracles of the expected messianic kingdom. In fact, the expression, God reigns, is found in Isaiah 52, 7, which refers to the future reign of the suffering servant. All right, let me translate that from the scholar speak. Okay, look at the last part of what he said. When Psalms like number 93 declare that God is enthroned, they're using the same language that God used with Moses at the burning bush and when he gave the law on Mount Sinai. In case you don't know those stories, God was kind, but he was compelling at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God was every inch the monarch sending out his retainer, Moses. God was large and in charge. Look at the next point from Ross. The idea that, God's reign, that God reigns points to the future kingdom of the Messiah, Jesus perfectly fulfills all of Isaiah's suffering servant songs. Jesus will establish his promised kingdom on earth. Jesus will reign as absolute monarch. He is God physically enthroned. Jesus is the sovereign. And one day he will be king on this earth. We will serve as his retainers under his absolute monarchy. So listen up, Americans, listen up. While you may have good reasons for, for resisting emperors here and now, Absolute monarchy is an idea that you will one day embrace. In fact, let me tell you this. If you want a close relationship with God today, you better get used to responding to him as enthroned because that's who the triune God is. God is enthroned. What else do we learn about Yahweh? Verse 1, we see that he is powerful. Look at the clause, enveloped in strength. That marvelous image shows might, power. Yahweh is so powerful that strength emanates from him. It, it wraps his throne with power. When I was a little boy, one of the guaranteed fights, uh, one of the guaranteed uh, ways to start a fight in our neighborhood was to begin the argument about whose dad was strongest, right? Yeah, my dad can beat your dad. My dad's strong, right? Nowadays, probably, uh, I would imagine the fights are over whose dad is most hypersensitive. Um, <laughs> think about it. Can't you imagine preschool, preschool playground fights today? Oh, yeah, my daddy sued every business in this county. Anyway, um, but you know, the point's actually the same. It's a desire to have a powerful parent. In my childhood, physical strength was our measure of power. Today, it, it might be something else. But whatever the cultural measure, the fights always break out over whose parent is more powerful. Now, those preschool arguments are specious. In fact, our daddies used to get together in, in the neighborhood and just laugh at us. But I'd like to think for a moment on why those arguments even happen. Why do young kids want their dad to be strong? 
Why does a small child really, really want a powerful parent? I'll tell you why. Because that kid is keenly aware of his own fragility. He is aware of his own weakness. Even with their love of adventure, every little boy or girl knows, learns very early on, that this world is big and it is scary. And thus, a strong parent becomes very important in the mind of a child. But there's a problem, right? The problem is wise parents are aware of how weak we are. True? We most certainly are not enveloped with power. How many of you here are parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Keep your hand up. Raise it really high, all the way up. Keep your hand up if having children has exposed weaknesses in your life. Go ahead. Keep it up. Yeah. All right. All right. Everybody, even if you're not a parent, raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand with the parents. Everybody. Come on. Everybody raise your hand. Everybody in the auditorium, unless you're a recent heart patient, because this can raise your blood pressure, you put your hand down. All right. Everybody keep your hand up. Studies show that normally it takes about one minute for people to get discomfort from a raised arm. When they have it all the way up, Noah, not this, this, you know, yeah. When they have a raised arm, it takes, if you don't move it, it take, you get discomfort about one minute, right? If some of you already, you're starting to feel a little discomfort now, right? Well, you've had shoulder surgery. Okay, yeah. Okay, so if you can do this all day and all night, you just keep your arm up all day and all night, keep your hand up right now. No, you can't. Put your hand down. All right. But God can. Look at your text. He never wearies. In, in contrast with us, God is enveloped in strength. He is enthroned. He is powerful. And he has always ruled his creation. God has always ruled over the earth. He is fully sovereign over it and authority established from the beginning of creation and not undone by the effects of human sin. Yes, there is sin and suffering on this broken planet. That's why the Scriptures promise that God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth to complete His plan of redemption. Here and now, floods come. Look, look at verses 3 and 4. Mighty waters rise up. They cause havoc in human lives. And, and the words are meant as a metaphor that it's beyond just physical floods, right? Tim Keller points out, look what Keller writes. He says, the sea was feared in Hebrew thought as a source of chaos and the habitat of monsters, yet... God's rule is absolute over all such forces. No matter the tumult, God is ever ruling. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Now, take a deep breath. Okay, everybody, take a deep breath because this is going to rattle you a little bit, all right? The scriptures here burst one of the most sacred parts of our ubiquitous modern secular religion. The idea that this planet is fragile. It most certainly is not. The truth screams at us from verse 1. By the way, it's also displayed in macro science. The earth is not fragile. God doesn't need you to keep his creation alive. The earth spins quite nicely, and the systems work very well without your help or mine. However, that isn't to say that we don't have responsibilities on this planet. Humans are intended to serve Yahweh and ruling his creation with him. Such were God's statements to Noah, repeated uh, to, to Adam, repeated again to Noah, lest you think that they went away when sin came. People are God's stewards over his creation, repeated throughout the scripture. In fact, this idea of human stewardship is, is through all the Psalms as well. I only had time to choose one, but here's just one. Psalm 8, uh, for the choir director on the Getith, a Davidic psalm. Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? And the Son of Man, that you look after him, you made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent 
is your name throughout the earth. Now, that psalm is about the Messiah and especially about his kingdom, but it also covers all human anthropology. Every person is made in God's image as his servant. And as God perfectly rules over his creation, we are to assist him in that work. All God's people said? Back in Psalm 93, we learn what's headlined on the right side of our notes. Look to the right side of your notes. He is eternal. This is so cool. Look at this. The end of verse 2 and the end of verse 5 form a remarkable combination of thought. All right? Verse 2 ends, you, God, are from eternity. Verse 5 ends, for all the days to come. And the way it's written implies for all of the individual days to come. Thus, this Iron Age song shows here a remarkable understanding of infinity. If you took calculus, how many of you took calculus at some point? I'm so sorry. If you took calculus, you learned this. You learned that something that is infinite is also, in a sense, always present. Something that is infinite is also always present. That's exactly what this song says about God. Now, I have to do this real quickly. For you mathematicians among us, Please forgive my oversimplification of set theory. All right, I would love to hear you debate uh, V versus ultimate L versus Martin's maximum sometime, but we'll do that another day. For the rest of us who have trouble counting to 20 with our shoes off, um, this is the bottom line. Okay, here's the bottom line. From the great calculus of Newton, here's the bottom line. If something can be infinite, it in a sense is also always present. Do you know how Newton got there? Because he read the Psalms. God's songs about God led Newton to the truth. Because God is infinite from eternity, he is also omnipresent today and every single day to come. Think about the singularity of that. Would you just, just consider your own life and all the input that you receive every day? Everything that bombards you purports to be immediate, right? Breaking news, crisis, act now, right? Everything, all day. But the lack of eternality is precisely what makes that pretended immediacy in our day so false. When there is no infinite gravitas to what is being said, there can be no true immediacy. That's why almost all of the social media articles that you endure are unhelpful. Because unlike Facebook, God is eternal. Now, reread all of verse 5. All of verse 5. Lord, your testimonies are completely reliable. Holiness is the beauty of your house for all the days to come. God and his word are trustworthy. Think again about all those reactionary tweets that pepper your phone all day long. Most of those turn out to be decidedly unreliable. They, they, change, they change more often than doctors' opinions about coffee, right? But God is always accurate. His words, when we approach them in context, are utterly true. Your changing culture is shifting sand. God's words are rock. David majestically captures God's trustworthy words in Psalm 19. I'd like you to read with me. Psalm 19, we're going to read verses 7 and 8. You take the underlined text, okay? Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Isn't that awesome? You read Scripture and it, it revives your soul. Oh, it's so incredible. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. This is how you learn, Mr. Newton. God's words are reliable. By the way, since I spoke earlier of our new pastor, you should know about a note I got from Summer Sipes when uh, Jared was being considered. She wrote me this. She said, Wayne, we looked at his web history and all his writing. There was not one thing objectionable, not even one misspoken word. Close quote. Wow. 
course, that will not always be true of Pastor Jared because he is human, right? But it is true of God. And Christians, Christians, all you Christians who are being remade, the Bible says you're being remade into God's image, we should aspire to that. All God's people said, amen. May it be so. Finally, verse 5 shows us this truth about God. He is holy. The psalmist here is thinking of God's eternal temple like a house, like a, like a house to be decorated. Um, think of some recent thing you did to decorate your dwelling. All right, something you did for your room or, or for where you live, something you bought, uh, a new remodel, paint, pillows, anything. Think of something you did, a poster you put on the wall, something you did. Okay, get it. Get it in your mind. The thing you did most recently to, to decorate your dwelling. Okay, you got it? Got something in mind? All right, now, take your, your fixer-upper idea and compare it with God's. Your decoration, whatever you did, is it as wonderful as holiness? Holiness. What would our homes be like if we spent more energy on decorating with holiness? Remember, this was written at a time when temples to various gods dotted every single city on the earth. By the way, they still do. We just call them Super Bowl venues now, okay? <laughs> anyway, all these temples needed decoration. In, in Athens, they used, uh, they used marble and gold. In Siam, they used mahogany and silver. In Babylon, they used plants and statues. But what does the real, one, true God use to decorate? Holiness. Of course, the point of the image is that Yahweh is completely transcendent. Just as he is beyond the materials of the earth, so he is beyond the sin and confusion of this world, he is thus perfect and worthy of our worship. Amen? All right, so what does that mean for us? Look, look, look back over the things we've learned about God from his psalms. Let's apply this to our lives. Yahweh is holy, trustworthy, eternal. He is powerful, rules creation, is enthroned. What does that mean for me? First, three things that I see. First, it means that God is mightier than our trials, and he is with us in them. We will face floods. We will. Now, these may be physical distresses like our countrymen faced in, uh, in soaked Louisiana last year. Or our floods may be more spiritual in nature. They may be broader. But either way, floods will come. Regardless of the nature of the threat, our royal leader does not remove trials and troubles from our current state. He, he does not remove us from danger and pain. Instead, you know what he does? He stands with us in that pain, reminding us that our God is mightier than our trials. In fact, the very word God uses for himself in Psalm 93 emphasizes this. Look, he calls himself Yahweh. Yahweh is the special covenant name of God in Hebrew. It's always used of God's relationship to human beings by His grace. It, it is a name for a commitment that cannot and will not ever waver. By calling Himself Yahweh five times in five verses, our covenant Lord is declaring that He is bonded to us by His name and by His word. So, what's your current flood? Is it cancer? Relational pain? Idiot children? Numbskull parents? Job problems, the psalm tells us something very, very important about that flood. God is mightier than that trial, whatever it is, and he is with you in it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't hurt or cry out. We're, we're going to see next time that God loves lament and he uses lament. But God's presence does mean that you cry out in a different way than the poor flooded world around you. Our forefathers tried to capture this in a document called the Heidelberg Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, one time, years ago, I was very blessed to spend a day with the oldest known copy of this document. Um, 
it was really cool, George. I got to put on special gloves and, and read through in my very broken German the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, in that day, when I got to look at it, it was written in 1563. When I got to look at it a few years ago, it was held in the basement of Heidelberg University in Germany. Um, it was the work of a number of great scholars, primarily this man, Zacharias Ursinus. By the way, you know what that means in Latin? Zachary the Bear. Is that the greatest name ever? Somebody, next, next son you have, name him Zachary the Bear. I love that. It's just great. Okay, so Zach the Bear's Heidelberg Confession, it's not scripture, it's not perfect, but, but I find it really useful. For example, point 28, number 28 of his Heidelberg Confession was especially inspired by what you and I have just studied today. It was inspired by these enthronement psalms. Look what he asked. Question, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature can separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move, close quote. And then he lists a bunch of scriptures that, that prove the summary. That is very well summarized. Now, with that in mind, think of your personal flood. Think of your trial in this season of your life and walk your flood through each of those truths, would you? Because of Yahweh, I can be patient in adversity. I really can. Because of Yahweh, I can be thankful for prosperity knowing that all blessings are from Him. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Because of Yahweh, I can look to the future with confidence because even though I don't know all of the future, I know the one who holds it in His hand. Amen? So God is holy, he is trustworthy, eternal, rules creation, he's powerful, he's enthroned. What does that mean for me? It means I needn't stand alone. Second thing, as humans, the psalm teaches us, we are specially blessed as stewards over God's creation. The triune God rules over creation. We are his vice regents stewarding the earth with him. This was for centuries understood by almost all Christian and Jewish thinkers. But in the modern era, this idea of stewarding creation has given way to two very radical extremes. One is preservationism, that's on one hand, and on the other is environmental flippancy. Why the change from God's truth? Think, think about this. Why does preservationism, by the way, preservationism holds that human beings are only evil for the environment. They are always, always bad for it in every way. Why does preservationism only take hold in the modern era? It actually seems to make more sense with paganism, but it wasn't widespread in any pagan culture. Only in the modern era has this become a major thought process. Why does the, why does the opposite nonsense of rampant environmental destruction take such hold in the modern era? Think, it has nothing to do with technology. N nothing. It has everything to do with mentality. You see, modern humans on each end of the environmental nonsense have one thing in common, one thing in common. At each extreme, they believe there is no creator. There's no creator. If there's no creator, then humans have neither dignity nor responsibility. If there's no creator, it's either up to us very, very few enlightened ones to protect everything from all the other idiots, or what we do doesn't matter a whit. And this may explain why, why the greatest scientific revolution happened in Reformed Christian Europe before modernity ruined our attitude about the creator and his creation. Tracy Bush of our pulpit team wrote me a great quote on this. Uh, she quoted John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? Listen to this. This is really well said. Ortberg writes, 
A number of historians argue that certain ideas about how the world must work if it was created by a good rational God, those ideas were crucial in leading to the creation of modern science. In March 2009, NASA sent out a telescope named after Johannes Kepler, the great mathematician and astronomer of about A.D. 1600. Here's what Kepler wrote. This is a true quote from Kepler. Brilliant. God, like a master builder, has laid the foundation of the world according to law and order. God wanted us to recognize those laws by creating us after his image so we could share in his own thought. Ortberg goes on. Alfred North Whitehead, Lord Whitehead, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century, asked, what is it that made it possible for science to emerge in the human race? His answer was fascinating. Here's his answer. It's the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Because if you believe that creation was made by a rational God, it would lead to fundamentally different assumptions than if you started with the idea that it's all just a random accident. He goes on. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. And people did. The vast majority of the pioneers of science, William of Ockham, Francis Bacon, Galileo, Copernicus, Blaise Pascal, Joseph Priestley, Louis Pasteur, Isaac Newton, who ended up writing commentaries on the book of Revelation, they viewed their work as learning to think God's thoughts. George Washington Carver said he started his studies by holding up a peanut and saying, God, what's in a peanut? He wraps up with this. This is not to say science could not have arisen otherwise, but Dinesh D'Souza put it this way. Science, as an organized, sustained enterprise, arose only once in human history, in Europe, in the civilization called Christendom. Close quote. Let me just ask you this. Do you want that kind of revolution to continue? Do, do you want your kids and your grandkids and your neighbors to find and enjoy medical breakthroughs? Do you want, do you want a sustainable, long-term ecosystem, sustainable economically and relationally and environmentally, if you do, then you better start thinking according to the Psalms. Because I'll tell you something. Neither preservationism nor wanton misuse of resources is going to get you where you want to be. It is imperative that we live out who we are. Stewards who partner with God in managing His creation. There's one other very personal application. When we realize how great God is, then we desire to be part of that holy house. This is a big part of what God does when he, when he opens a person's eyes to the gospel of Jesus, what we saw in the baptisms celebrated here this morning. You see, a person understands. There's a moment where they understand there's a real heavenly father and that his family's awesome and that his house is eternal. And, and you find that you, you long for that. You long for that. C.S. Lewis had a brilliant chapter on this in his wonderful book, The Weight of Glory. Um, he describes how we all sense that there is something wonderful just beyond us, something we only see or hear glimpses of in our life. Uh, here's a quote from it. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. He said, these things, the, the beauty, the, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of the worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we've not yet found, the, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited, close quote. We long for God's perfect house. And then this happens. We discover that he made a way for us to be in that country. We find out that he made a way for us to be a part of that household, that Jesus, the Son of God, died for us and rose from the grave so that everyone who trusts him could be adopted into God's forever family. And all he requires is that we trust Jesus, that we trust God and no longer ourselves, and then we become part of that holy house. Can I get a hallelujah? Amen. The Psalms want us to deal in truth, and all truth 
begins with the truth about God. In fact, that's the, that's the whole idea behind our series. Look, here's the, here's the premise. New series we're starting today. Here's why we're studying this. The Psalms teach us how to enjoy a truthful relationship with God in everyday life. So often, discernment and truth-seeking or mere academic exercises confined to specific situations. Yet the Psalms reveal a living reality to biblical veracity. These songs are crafted to continually ground us in the truth, to, to ring in our ears as lasting daily reminders. Thus, these catchy earworms are God's great way of informing and infusing our hearts toward reformed living, close quote. I love this note I got from Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team. She wrote me and said this, Wayne, discernment and truth-seeking are the top needs today. Our culture seems like a bunch of hungry sparrows with our beaks open, accepting anything that's stuffed into them. Seeking truth in God's songs is a much better plan, which takes us to our objective. The objective is what we hope to see God accomplish in us through this study. And here's the objective that I, that I have prayed for you and for me that we sing the truth before the Lord every day. Sing, by the way, in the Psalms is often used as a, as a euphemism for live, that we live truth before the Lord every day. Pray with me that we will meet that lofty objective. Father, we are not capable in ourselves of singing truth, but you are. And so my brothers and sisters and I put ourselves before you and we beg you this, that you will empower us and change us, that we really do sing before you a new song every day, that we have implanted in our minds that you are enthroned and that it is a privilege to serve as your vice regent taking care of this earth and all the people and things on it, that we recognize the awesome power of knowing that you have put us in your household who have trusted you. And that it's not just something for then and there, that's true, but it's here and now because you are with us in every flood. Please, Lord, write that on my heart and let me live differently as a result. And by the way, speaking of your holy house, I pray, oh, Father, I pray for anybody, anybody studying with me here or elsewhere that does not have that assurance that they're part of your holy house, I beg you to draw them to you right now. Friend, listen, listen. God loves you. He loves you so much that you, who do not deserve to be in his holy house, because you're not holy. You're not. If you have any doubts on that, come up. We'll talk afterwards. It won't take me seconds to set you straight. You're not holy. Neither am I. But God loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, fully God, fully human. You know what he did? He took all of, all of the sin and he put it on him. He took him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. Trust in him. And you are saved. Your sins are removed and placed on Jesus who alone is capable of paying for them and raising from the dead. And then you get to follow him in everlasting life as part of God's holy household. Right now, trust Jesus. Just talk to God who loves you and say, I, I receive the chance to be in him. I believe in Jesus. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Act on it. Good for you. Praise God. Amen. Father, I pray for all these believers in Christ, just as I pray for myself, that we will be that we will be, in the words of our forefathers, patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and view the future with firm confidence.
In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen.